the teacher and the administrators coming alongside the students, creating a school climate and culture of everyone is a learner here. And it, it's okay to take a risk. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to need help. Those are all things that are crucial to project-based learning, but it's not a free-for-all. <laughs> there's, there's, still, there's still structure in place to keep people safe and happy. It restores or encourages agency and autonomy. So we, we are restoring that. And that is, a, in my view, definitely aligns well with a self-directed mindset and improves culture and climate. Hi, and welcome to the third season of the Exploring the Core podcast. In this first episode, I speak with Lindsay Blackburn, an expert in project-based learning, alongside SJ Barraconi, advocate for alternative education solutions. Thanks for listening. For those new to the podcast, my name's Greg Mullen. I'm a credentialed teacher and education consultant with a philosophy I refer to as self-directed schooling. It incorporates a developmentally mindful, standards-based, and social-emotional approach for creating a self-directed learning environment in a school setting. And while this philosophy carries with it a unique perspective toward elements of culture and values that are specific to a school-centered community, it's not the only philosophy in the world of education. That's why today I'm speaking with Lindsay Blackburn, a project-based learning expert, and S.J. Barraconi, an advocate for alternative education solutions. And what we'll be exploring together is how project-based learning, or PBL, might actually support a self-directed mindset and affect a school's climate and culture. With that purpose in mind, I'd like to introduce S.J. Barraconi and let him share a bit about where he's coming from and what his perspective is toward the world of education. Greg, thank you so much for the uh, kind invitation to be a guest and to be a leadoff for a season is a nice little bonus as well. So again, uh, for your listeners, your downloaders, um, my name is S.J. Barraconi, and my brand is the Education Sherpa. I believe we all need to be able to unlearn, learn, and relearn. And as a part of that continuum, I have experience over the last almost eight years um, offering mentoring, offering a family advisory solution, as well as offering group facilitation for groups of people. Um, I have experience in about, depending on how you slice and dice the philosophies, about 10 to 12 different philosophies or modalities. And one of them is PBL, and I see PBL as intersecting with a lot of these others because you can take a project, build the learning around it, and use some of these philosophies to flesh things out. So I believe that all students, regardless of geography, regardless of socioeconomics, regardless of belief in a higher power or no belief, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I believe everyone deserves a customized approach to their learning. The factory model, the conveyor belt has to be put to rest. So again, I'm glad to be here and thank you so much. The factory model, the origins of education from centuries ago, fantastic. I'm positive we'll get into that a bit more today, but now I'd like to introduce Lindsay Blackburn and let her share a bit about where she's coming from and her perspective toward education. I'm Lindsay Blackburn. I began in the field of education as a classroom teacher, high school social studies in Spanish. 
I then had a unique opportunity to join a team at an alliance um, nonprofit that was helping charter schools in Ohio. And um, that time was quite unique. We were building a school improvement network uh, to help these schools boost them. There were about 380 or so at the time. And what that allowed me to do was get into a lot of different schools. I traveled all around the state, visiting schools, talking with schools, working with schools. And I saw different ways of doing business, different ways of reaching and teaching kids. And it opened my eyes. I'm a product of a traditional public school education. I then taught in a traditional public school setting. And my time at the Charter Alliance was um, very formative for me in helping me see that there was, as SJ says, different, you know, models. Then I started my own business. So that was uh, seven school years ago. And I have been focusing um, mainly in the areas of instruction, curriculum, assessment, and data um, with expertise in professional development, teacher-based teams, project-based learning as well. Project-based learning is really a passion uh, for me. It's speaks to my heart. I have three children under eight, and I want them all to be doing project-based learning in their schools. So, you know, I'm, I'm talking the talk, but I'm also trying to walk the walk here in my own daily life. Lindsay, I like that you mentioned how before you were a consultant for project-based learning, that you taught high school history and Spanish. And I'm curious how you think your experience teaching subjects like history and Spanish influenced your eventual discovery of the project-based learning perspective. So I suppose this this is another interesting uh, fact, maybe that I haven't thought so much about, but I taught Spanish and Spanish is not a state mandated state assessment <laughs> from on high um, tested <laughs> subject area. And so I had the opportunity to dip my toe into projects. Now, projects are not the same as project-based learning. So just for some clarity there, you know, glue sticks and um, poster boards and class presentations, you know, are, is, not, is not PBL. And um, that's an important distinction to make. So, but in any case, um, teaching in a non-tested subject area gave me the opportunity to have more flexibility, more creativity, to have the kids working on things that were of interest to them. Um, and uh, I would say that was probably my only, you know, insight into that. I did not have the opportunity to be trained in project-based learning while I was a teacher, that was just not something that was happening at any of the schools that I was at. Even when I was at the Alliance, um, helping charter schools around Ohio, I don't, I didn't, I can't say that I saw any project-based learning happening there either. I saw different ways of doing things, but I didn't see any PBL. That's interesting that you aren't seeing project-based learning in schools, and I'm sure that that's changing as you continue to work with schools around Ohio. I also like the distinction you make about how doing a project in a classroom is not the same as doing project-based learning. It sounds like you're describing project-based learning as a way of coaching students in project management. So now that you're working with schools, coaching them on the beliefs and practices related to project-based learning, I'm wondering what that experience has been like for you and how it's been received by the schools you've been working with. When we initially roll out a training in a school or a district, there is a lot of excitement. And I that excitement stems from teachers 
having a light light bulb moment where they're like, this is how, this is why I wanted to become a teacher. This is how I wanted to be, you know, reaching kids and, and educating and, and making a difference. The close second feeling to that is a feeling of complete discomfort, um, nervousness, and like that, like they're, everything is going to just be spinning out of control. Um, because a lot of our deep rooted, you know, teacher is the sage on the stage teacher is, um, the leader of the classroom and the leader of the learning, um, that's, that's going to get turned upside down. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, particularly those who are sort of set in their ways. And you find that everywhere you go there, I've never introduced this idea in a room and every single person was gung ho. <laughs> There's always a handful, uh, at least a handful who are nervous about, uh, the shift. One of my favorite quotes is from a teacher. He said, I had to figure out what I was going to do during class because the students were, were like you were talking about project management. The students were being self-directed. The students were managing their projects. They were, you know, collaborating and all that. And the teacher, instead of being um, the stage on the stage, was now the guide on the side. And they were more in that coaching role, that mentoring role. And um, that was you know, I bring that quote up with teachers so that it gets them thinking like, wow, yeah, my role is going to change. Now, this is where I'd like to bring SJ back into the mix here, because when we talk about introducing contemporary philosophies like project-based learning, we could just as easily be talking about this with things like unschooling or the Thomas Jefferson approach. There's, you know, the Lieber, the classical education, Montessori, Waldorf, you know, and when any of these kinds of novel approaches to educating students are introduced to teachers and parents whose only experience in education has been the more traditional approach to teaching and learning, SJ, what's your take on the challenges of talking with people about these kinds of paradigm shifts in education? Excellent transition. Um... I would have to say, depending on how you, Greg, Lindsay, and our and our audience um, defines a generation, some might say it's 15 years, some might say 25, whatever you say. Let's just round it off to 20. So the march of the factory conveyor belt model really started in the 1890s, okay? 1893 is the most common year because that was the year of the Committee of Ten. So what is that? That we are approaching seven generations who have been taught that the teacher is the authority. And if you don't have the answer that he or she or they have, then chances are it's wrong. Or you're memorizing something to regurgitate it back for one of these data-driven reasons. But when I look at education and you talk to a parent, I would say that parents probably get a tremendous amount of joy when your kids ask questions and they show interest in things. But the factory model tends to just completely smash them to the pavement. And it's like, this is what you need to know. I don't care what you want to know. Okay. So all these other modalities bring it to the surface. Maybe you're learning through a classical model. You know, maybe you're learning through Thomas Jefferson model, which is the way that he was educated. And then it kept passing on for multiple other generations after him through Monticello. 
um, or any of the others. Unschooling, completely removing the shackles completely, which is a very big step. But it's all about rediscovering the joy of curiosity, of ingenuity, of innovation, and the fact that there often isn't one right answer. Now, of course, there's some exceptions, like if you're talking about the Pythagorean theorem or the law of physics or something like that, of course. But in the social sciences and the humanities and such, of course not. Even even economics, which is sort of like a social science with a little bit of hard science in there, there's, there's 10 different schools of economics that I'm aware of. But no, no, that is definitely an issue, Greg. And I think what we need to do is we need, we need to just slowly unwind, unwind people to understand that you're not disrespecting that person in the up in, up in the front of the room by looking at these models or introducing PBL. But what you're saying is, is let's make sure we reignite a true joy, a passion for learning and don't just shove stuff at people like we've been doing for far too long. Now, you mentioned having to unwind people and how these new paradigms are not meant to be disrespectful. So I'm guessing your experience has involved some parents and teachers who struggle with these kinds of shifts you're out there talking about with adopting what you and I might agree are arguably more equitable models for education. Uh, Yes, yes, Um, because A, they went through it themselves, B, even with the even with the last two and a half years, there's still a lot of people still in the factory model. So if you're in an average cul-de-sac in neighborhood XYZ in California or Ohio or anywhere else, chances are, let's just say there's 10 households and 10 kids again to round it off, probably still seven or eight of them are probably still in the factory model. So you're surrounded by it. You're in the fishbowl. But I will say that as we slow but surely continue to unravel this, it will continue to get better for our society because true education should be holistic. And we should have a decent working understanding of of other things around us. And we shouldn't have to say, well, I, you know, we shouldn't have to say, well, I need to elect that person to let them handle it. Or I need to automatically off, you know, hand this off. And a lot of parents have gotten used to that over the years, especially the boomers and to some degree, my generation, the Xers for sure, but the millennials and the Zoomers are starting to say enough's enough. And that's a fascinating point that I really want to dig deeper and explore, SJ, but I do want to get into something you said first about how the traditional school is telling students whatever questions they have must be about the content the school has already decided they need to learn about at such and such a grade level based on age and test scores. And so... I want to take this back to Lindsay for her take. Lindsay, what do you think of this idea in the context of project-based learning? And I think more to the point, do you think that as a history and Spanish teacher that you had more freedom to transition to project-based learning than maybe your colleagues did who taught subjects that had state-mandated testing schedules attached to them? Yeah, personally speaking, um, Absolutely. You know, you have the opportunity to have more flexible use of time. Um, Time is always the caveat, right? Like the tests are such and such weak and everyone's spinning backwards from the test. Um, You know, a little bit more flexible, um, what we would call in PBL voice and choice in, you know, you're going to write a story. What do you want your story to be about? Or you're going to create a book or a travel guide or what have you. All those things, you know, allow students 
voice and choice. The opportunity to do projects allows them to collaborate in groups if it's a group project, which is huge in PBL. But I would say, you know, the ever ticking, literally ticking issue is time. And that's a huge pushback I get from teachers um, when we first introduce PBL in their school or district is how am I going to do everything I'm doing now or have to do now and also do PBL? But in, tr- in a true PBL culture, the project, the, the learning and the standards and the checklists are happening within the project. They, they are the project. They, they're, the, they're the vehicle for the project rather than the other way around, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And it's a fascinating perspective that brings up a really good point that there are those teachers who see project-based learning as just something added to their plate, as something extra they have to do. On top of all the other things they're already being told they have to do, on top of all the things they know must be done for their students to learn everything that their teachers are telling them they need to learn. But it sounds like you found success in schools who have approached project-based learning in a way that develops autonomy, that develops competence, that develops the relatedness and self-determination in adopting and adapting a project-based learning model. And in that context, what's your take on introducing a new paradigm like PBL to schools who may not be entirely ready to adopt a new teaching initiative? So no matter what the initiative is, you're going to have early adopters. You're going to have teachers who who get it and want to just do it. It can be that can be a new educational technology. That can be yep. something like you know a change in in the way that you're you're teaching. It could be PBL. In terms of encouraging them, it's crucial from the start. Um, recognizing their efforts, they're they're going to extremes. They're putting an intense extra effort on top of what everyone, I'm using air quotes right now, this is a podcast (laughs) on top of what everyone has to do. Um, So, you know, recognizing that and acknowledging that is, is super important. Um, It's what it does is it makes them more comfortable in taking risks. The, The other thing is no teacher is going to be gold medal female teacher right out of the gate. It's going to take years. And if there's, you know, five, six, eight, 10 elements that make up a a high quality PBL teacher, maybe you're going to hit on or focus on two of those in a semester. If you're lucky, maybe four of those over the course of a school year. So helping teachers understand that it's okay to not be amazing right away. (laughs) Having them reflect on their first year of teaching in general is always a good way to do that. And then to your point of those feelings that they feel at the beginning of PBL creates huge empathy for their students because their students are going to be feeling the same way. There's going to be some who are early adopters. There are going to be some who feel like it's extra um, on top of what they're quote already doing, exact same quote from the teachers, um, and encouraging them and, and making them feel comfortable taking risks and all the things I just said um, is going to be re-emphasized with the kids. So it's fun to watch (laughs) um, that transformation. And to go back a couple of years later, districts and schools roll out PBL over a couple of years. 
And so I've had the opportunity to rejoin in the training the next year and then rejoin in the training the next year after that. And what you see is those teachers who you first trained in the, uh, in the initial stages come back and tell you, you know, all about their projects and their kids. And it's great. And often I just say, here, can you just talk for a while here and tell everyone who's sitting here nervous right now that it's all going to be okay and it's going to be amazing. Now, I'm glad you brought up the early adopters in a teaching staff because and colleagues I've had from my years teaching can attest to this. I was definitely one of those who took a new initiative and sprinted with it, swam with it until my fingers got all pruny. And the colleagues who were there with me in that never-ending effort, I found had in them a lot of the characteristics that I promote in my students when I'm teaching with a self-directed schooling perspective. You know, when coaching students to be self-directed, it's often focused on promoting the kinds of confidence and self-efficacy and the knowledge of learning how to learn and not just memorizing facts and procedures. I mean, they do memorize, but only as part of a learning process. They learn to internalize and reflect on. But to get to that early adopter mindset, what it sounds like to me, what you're describing, Lindsay, is a self-directed mindset just without the self-directed title. So I'm curious what you both think about that phrase, a self-directed mindset, in the context of these early adopting teachers and parents and their go-get-it attitude, and I can do it, and I can problem solve, and when it's hard, I can overcome, and the growth mindset of a self-directed learner. Just that phrase, a self-directed mindset, what does that phrase mean from both your perspectives? And SJ, I'll throw it to you first. Uh, what are your thoughts? What's your take on this? Self-directed mindset. Well, my first my first uh, thought on it is I really I really like it because I think it holds a lot of kernels of opportunity that we can pop. How I would unravel this a little more is to look at it this way. You are saying that I have more of a self-determination, I have some sort of motivation, intrinsic or extrinsic, or maybe both, to direct my own self to what I am seeking. So along the journey, I am going to probably learn. I'm probably going to unlearn stuff that has not been valuable to me or that doesn't seem to work, and I will relearn things in its place. Toffler talked about this years ago in Future Shock. I'm pretty sure this was this was attributed to him or as a direct quote, the illiterate of the 21st century would be those who could not do those three things. So I see those three things as a part of a self-directed mindset. You also hit Greg is what Dweck taught us about growth and fixed mindsets. The factory model conveyor belt is a very insular fixed mindset. You are seven years old, therefore you must be in second grade, that kind of stuff with some limited exceptions. You are in this area of the city, state, county, village, therefore you go to that school. You are in this school, school bracket of grade levels, therefore you must get there at X amount in the morning and leave at X in the afternoon and we do this much on social studies, you know, completely and utterly obsolete in the 2020s. So the self-directed mindset, those early adopters are going to say, well, wait a minute here. We are in a Tesla age 
and we're still using a mindset that is from the horse and buggy era. What is wrong with this picture? So how about we confront it and let's all seek out the truth and the information, hopefully that becomes wisdom that we can then use to not only better our own life professionally, personally, and other phases, but also improve the lives of those who we are serving in the classroom, in the local community, our own peer group. So that's how I would take an angle on that. That's a great question, and I appreciated it. Yeah, yeah. And there's clearly a lot bubbling underneath this phrase. And, and we're going to dig deeper into this idea of a self-directed mindset. It's a phrase I found people associate different ideas too. And so, Lindsay, especially from your perspective as a PBL consultant, what's bubbling underneath that phrase for you? Well, I think there's quite a bit, you know, if we take the true like dictionary definition of self-directed, it's it's showing initiative, the ability to organize oneself, the ability to manage oneself. Those are all falling under that sort of definition of self-directed. If you look at self-direction in a project-based learning environment, teachers, educators create flexible use of spaces, flexible use of time, which SJ just hit on um, the time, you know, class periods of the day, you know, or this school or that building um, or this part of the building, um, but in general, having flexible use of space and time. Also having the opportunity to have authentic work to work on. So authentic, authenticity means that the work the students are doing is meaningful, that it's relevant to their own lives, um, that it touches on something in their community. Um, or in the world, the big, the big wide world. They have a self-desired self-direction automatically when the work is authentic. They want to address those issues um, because they're important to them. Um, and they want to make things better. You know, a self-directed person is ready to, to change their, you know, their situation or to change what's going on to, to get after it. Teachers Educators, schools can also help facilitate a more self-directed environment by providing the opportunity for collaboration, both among students, among staff, and of course, students interacting with staff. Um, and being self-directed in a project-based learning environment also means that you are working on collaboration. And then I'll just touch on one more, the opportunity for students and staff to be reflective, in my opinion, is also huge as it relates to being self-directed. Do you want this to be authentic and helpful? Um, how can you get it to the point where it's sort of, you know, presentable to the experts in the field? That's, that's, that's primo PBL right there. So there's clearly a lot of areas where project-based learning and a self-directed mindset can overlap. But for those who still might see that self-directed mindset as a kind of free-for-all for students, or as something that expects students to just figure it all out on their own with no structure or no guidance, what would you say project-based learning offers to those seeking a balance between that self-directed and traditional teacher-led classroom learning environment it's not a free-for-all okay <laughs> it's it's there are norms yes. there are protocols 
there are structures. Ideally, those are actually co-created. The learners, the teachers, whomever is in that space together, they've co-created those norms. They've practiced, they've seen the protocols modeled, you know, those things, it is not a free-for-all. It can't be. Um, you know, think about a democratic society, right? Like, there are things in place. It's not a free-for-all. There's a spectrum of <laughs> how, how, how crazy can we get versus how, you know, structured can we get? And no. what we try to explain to teachers is there's also a range within PBL. If you, if this is your first time diving into this, your first quarter, your first semester ever tackling this, you're going to take a more structured, lighter version, you know, and not go full-fledged after you've been doing this for a time or you feel out, you know, your learners for the year, et cetera, you're going to have the opportunity to open that up a little bit more, but it is most absolutely, um, not all our thing, not all our practices, not all our things we've done in the past are just thrown out the window. We take bits and pieces of that to provide uh, the structure that, that we need. Now, this leads to a thought that I'd like to get both your opinions on, because I'm curious about that spectrum you mentioned with regards to PBL being more structured for teachers who may be new to it, but that over time, they can open things up as they get more comfortable with project-based learning in their classroom. That gets me thinking whether there's a particular boundary that we ought to define here where the authority and responsibility teachers must assume when they first, you know, adopt PBL, but that somehow that authority and responsibility decreases or shifts or transfers to the point where students eventually have more of that authority and responsibility for the learning in the classroom. So I'm curious... What are your thoughts on defining at what point we transfer that authority for learning from the teacher to the students? It depends on where your learning environment is. If you are in a traditional public school district, you have like contractually, there are certain things, you know, legally, there are certain things that you can and can't do. SJ, I'd roll it over to SJ and say, in a more open learning environment, what would you say? In an open environment, it's almost like you're taking steps. I've heard in a civil society, a concept of a power pendulum, where on one side you have chaos and the other side you have coercion. Total anarchy versus total authoritarianism, right? So we can use a bit of that to draw this out a little bit. So in a public environment, I would suspect, now obviously we're not talking complete and total authoritarianism here, but it's certainly closer. But then as you keep edging the other way, maybe we'll use the old term left to right on your radio dial. You go from that to a much more, much more flexible, customizable situation. So like, for example, I'm thinking of a community charter school is moving down the pike a little bit, right? Perhaps you might want to plug in next a micro school or a learning pod that is using maybe some sort of public building or something. So then there are certain, so you're, you're getting less and less regimented. And then somewhere in there, you can put your private facilities, whether they're faith-based or secular, right? So they're in there somewhere. 
And then you get to your co-ops for your home educators. And then I would say the end game would be true home education, which obviously could go as far as SDE or unschooling, which is like totally without shackles, right? So that's the way that I would I would pick up that ball from Lindsay and just take it down that way and say that you still have certain responsibilities. Like, for example, I just attended for a little while within the past few weeks, the graduation of the son of friends of mine, and he graduated with a home education, homeschool diploma. Well, there are certain things that he still had to do. However, he is 100% should be treated the exact same way as if he went to the public district nearby because he still, you know, he went, he, he, he is still just as educated. In fact, probably more educated, um, arguably than, uh, the person, you know, in it, you know, who is his same peer group age that went to the local school, uh, nearby. Right. So, but so SJ, I want to get back to that dial you described because I can see how it relates to a larger societal spectrum of order and anarchy, you know, collectivism and individualism, liberty, security. And I do see how it connects with the spectrum Lindsay mentioned, where PBL can be a bit more structured at the start, but eventually give way to a more student-led and self-directed environment for students, within reason, of course. But I can't help but wonder if you think that project-based learning can move far enough on that dial that it can provide the kind of learning environment that allows for some of those educational philosophies you mentioned earlier to coexist within the public school system. And maybe more importantly, do we even want those extreme ranges of that dial to coexist within the publicly funded school system? While I am a total free enterpriser and I believe in liberty, I believe in lifelong learning, and I believe in true organic leadership, which are the three root phrases that come out of the term liber or libertas, which some could even say is the then root word of liberal, okay? So when you really break it down into its component parts, you understand that liberal is a little different than how it gets represented out in the world today, right, in the 2020s. But do we want that total chaos where health and safety are an issue or they're not learning the basics of basics? Um, no, 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 no. I believe, though, that social power versus state power has a lot more potential to get those kind of situations addressed from the grassroots. Isn't um, the state formed from the individual social structures? Isn't it a product of the social structure? I would say yes. Um, a true organic government is formed that way. It's for, you know, I'm, I'm a Lockean. Now, for those listening who might not be familiar, the Lockean philosophy argues against monarchical kingdoms and insists that all persons are endowed with natural rights to life, liberty, and property. And as much as I'd love to dig deeper into the evolution of philosophy as it relates to education, I do want to bring it back to project-based learning and the fact that it has its own spectrum for implementation that might actually be a reasonable mechanism for moving this dial 
towards a more student-focused and even so far as a self-directed environment for students in our schools. And so to SJ, I think it's absolutely relevant to understanding what's bubbling underneath that phrase we mentioned earlier, that self-directed mindset, that what you're saying is relevant and important to discuss, and especially as it relates to project-based learning. So to Lindsay, I'd like to bring that back to you and ask for your take on that student-centered, self-directed side of the dial, specifically within the context of the schools you've coached these past couple of years in project-based learning. So in your experience, are there teachers in the traditional system who might actually be open to this more self-directed side of the PBL dial? Absolutely. Um, I just had a teacher, I went out to visit, she's fifth grade. I went out to visit with her um, on her break. And she said, I'm really, you know, our, our district just adopted this new English curriculum and it's very like it's scripted and I just can't believe it. And she told me some of the texts that they were reading and they were quite antiquated and, and she's just very frustrated. And she said, I got to get out of here. <laughs> I've been in this district for like 15 years, but I got to get out of here. Um, do you know of anything, any place that would be better for me? And she's like, I'm even willing to take a pay cut. You know, teachers in traditional districts, when they've been teaching a long time, that's a thing, you know, having to take a significant pay cut if they want to go somewhere else. There are places for her. There, there's places within 30 minutes of where we were sitting in her classroom that I absolutely thought would be a good match for her. And I actually did an e-intro for her to, to someone at one of those schools. And that may be the route that she goes. Um, it might not be for whatever reason she decides. But the good news is that if there's teachers who are of that mindset, there are lots of options for them to edge them closer to what's more in line with their true beliefs. Okay, but is there a way for that fifth grade teacher to take the mandated curriculum and walk that self-directed line with project-based learning? So the only problem in that case is she absolutely could. She's highly capable. And, and that's one of the reasons she's so itchy where she is, is because she is of the PBL mindset. Um, she could do it, but she would be doing it in isolation. Um, she would be considered um, a, a rebel and <laughs> she would be an outcast from the rest of her department, from the rest of the other fifth grade teachers throughout the huge district. So she could do it. But um it wouldn't be without um, stressors, and that's a that that would be a decision that she would have to make, and it, it most likely would not be encouraged um, by by her higher ups, unfortunately. But it's possible you can take a canned curriculum and turn it into a project based learning setup. You, can what you just said be introduced to a school's admin in a way that helps those admin to shift their mindset and allow their school culture? to shift and help their teaching staff to adopt this PBL mindset? So <clears throat> I guess I would hit on two, two points here. One is there about 10 years ago when I started doing PBL work, there was not a lot of um, research. There's a lot of research now. There's a lot of studies. Actually, PBL, as recently as we're talking today in June, as recently as April, was now classified as an effective um, strategy under the Every Student Succeeds Act. So it has to meet certain 
research-based, you know, best, best practices and go through all these studies and, you know, all the, receive all these, you know, check marks and all that kind of stuff. But PBL is now considered um, a, a research-backed effective practice. So I would point those administrators in the direction of research. Um, and more anecdotally, I would probably share the results of, of districts that I've interacted with in the past. One I'm thinking of actually here in Ohio, um, they saw their test scores rise um, several years in a row after implementing pretty intense project-based learning. Um, but I will caveat it with this because it's interesting. There was one grade level, one subject area, it was like fourth grade math, where the test scores went down. And so because of pushback from the board or the parents or whatever, they decided to ease off of the wall-to-wall -wall PBL for a little bit um, to, to sort of nurture, you know, the assessment aspect of quote unquote passing the test. So I, you know, I'm transparent. I <laughs> I'm tell things as they are. It doesn't work everywhere all the time, but PBL is good for all kids. And SJ said, all students deserve to have a model that works for them. We're coming back to this idea of all. PBL works for all students. And in fact, we see PBL in research being most effective with the students who are often the hardest to reach. SJ, any thoughts on that? I am aligned because if you look at one definition of PBL, and again, I'm sure there are multiple. What are some of the buzz or keywords that I see? I see student-centered. Fantastic. I'm all for that myself. Dynamic instead of static. All for it. Deeper diving knowledge. Diving in deeper instead of artificially cutting off. Okay, 45 minutes, close your book, move on to the next thing. Okay. Every one of these things that I just cited is part of a PBL definition that I'm familiar with, right? But these are all things that then if you would choose to potentially tap into one of these um, other philosophies, other modalities like TGAD, which is a heavily mentor-mentee model, or you draw from the ancients with the classics, or you do Montessori or you do Waldorf for more creatives, et cetera, et cetera. And there are many others. You can truly bring out and deal with those more difficult students. Because I think too many of these students that are difficult get written off in some way, shape, or form by the conventional model. But even if you did just a straight PBL in a conventional system, like you asked Lindsay that question a few minutes ago, that's a huge improvement in my view over just the same old, same old, which has gotten more and more expensive and has gotten less and less effective because the law of diminishing marginal returns kicked in a long time ago. And that is a law of societal and organizational decline. And once it hits, it's hard to reverse. Now, I mean, that gets us into a lot of really big ideas and, and I would love to get into it. But I, uh, for sake of time, I'm, what I'm what I'm getting here is that uh, from both of you is that project-based learning and a self-directed mindset, you know, there, there is an overlap, right? So 
my question to both of you to try and kind of wrap all of this up because we've been at it for a while. Uh, SJ, let's start with you. In what ways do you feel that PBL promotes a self-directed mindset as it relates to changing a school's culture and climate? Well, first, it restores or encourages agency and autonomy. So we, we are restoring that, and that is, a, in my view, definitely aligns well with a self-directed mindset and improves culture and climate. Because a lot of schools, unfortunately, and I know this might be mildly controversial, sometimes can resemble more of a prison environment or a jail environment than an environment of flourishing because there's too much command and control and too much compliance. Um, another is we can dive in deeper with individual students on certain things. And again, we don't have those artificial limits of a certain subject needs to be taught in this time and everything else. So that contributes to the self-directed mindset because the one example in self-directed would be like, well, I want to dive in deeper into understanding why the Roman Republic didn't last and how might that apply to our current local government or something. So you can do that. And then, of course, um, Lindsay heard it earlier and then I jumped on it, but I think it needs one more dose is the fact that we have certain elements of our society, certain students come out of certain households that simply do not fit in the conventional model. Why are we attempting to shove them into that model? Give them an opportunity. So that's how PBL can encourage a self-directed mindset to help those individual students, those clients deserve the same support as someone who adopts to it like a duck to water. Lindsay, same question. In what ways do you feel PBL promotes a self-directed mindset as it relates to changing a school's culture and climate? I think we've already talked about it, and it's just the teacher um, and the administrators coming alongside the students, creating a school climate and culture of everyone is a learner here, and it, it's okay to take a risk. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to need help. Those are all things that are crucial to project-based learning, but it's not a free-for-all. <laughs> there's, there's, still, there's still structure in place to keep people safe and happy. Again, something you mentioned at the beginning of, of the podcast. Okay, now, SJ and Lindsay, this has been an incredible conversation. And my last question for both of you has to do with uh, those who want to learn more about what we've discussed today, project-based learning, all the different philosophies and paradigms and initiatives. Um, how can someone reach out to you? Uh, let's start with SJ. And how might you be of assistance to those who want to learn more about what you do? Thank you for asking. Um, the best way to reach me is I, I find that LinkedIn is where my thought leadership works the best. So that's the best way. And since my name is so unique, SJ name, not initials, Barracone, very easy to find me. I also am on Instagram with the Education Sherpa. So those are my top two social. I also will provide Greg for your show notes, um, email address, phone number, and I have a digital scheduler or calendar. Of course, I have some other podcasts out there I've done. I've done workshops, talks, um, blogs and such, but that stuff sort of comes into place later. So those five, thank you for asking. And it was a pleasure to be on. 
And Lindsay, how do people get a hold of you and what help can you provide them? I'm an independent contractor, independent consultant, um, coach and trainer. My business name is In Partnership, LLC, I-N space partnership, LLC. Um, I also am on LinkedIn quite a bit, just under my name, Lindsay Blackburn. And I also am pretty active for educational stuff. I've made it my rule on Twitter to only follow educational <laughs> related things. I do not, that, that's been my Twitter rule for a long time. I use that only for my education space stuff. So um, my uh, Twitter handle is at teacher reacher, teacher reacher. Um, and just like SJ said, I'll put my contact information in the show notes as well. Um, I do live in Ohio. So I stay mostly in this area for trainings and stuff, but everything being so virtual now uh, really can, can talk to anyone anywhere, which is exciting and awesome. Well, Lindsay and SJ, it was so fascinating to talk to you both. And I'm really excited that you were able to take the time to speak with me on this episode. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Greg. Yes, thank you. I appreciate it.